This week in KMA land, COVID-19 still a threat in parts of KMA land. Montgomery County supervisors appoint new safety coordinator. Red Oak Council selects new city attorney. Iowa Senator Joni Ernst stops in Stanton. Page County supervisors designate opioid settlement dollar distribution. And two new candidates step forward in upcoming legislative races. I'm Mike Peterson. It's not in the news as much these days, but COVID-19 is still around in KMA land, including in Montgomery County. That's the message from Montgomery County Public Health Administrator Samantha Beeson to the county's Board of Supervisors Tuesday morning. Beeson's latest report indicated the county's total number of positive cases since March of 2020 was at 2,373. That's as of Tuesday. Beeson also noted a recent uptick in cases. Our 14-day, we've had 41 cases. Seven days, we've had 17 cases. Um, in the last three days, we had three cases. And our total vaccine administration rate is at 55.5%. Beeson still recommends the same precautions for individuals testing positive for COVID. We still are recommending everything we've said from the beginning, six day home. Um, CDC did change the quarantine and isolation guidance a little bit to where you are exposed. There's no longer quarantine requirement, but you're just supposed to wear a mask for the 10 days of your incubation period. Isolation is five days home, five days wearing a mask. They're no longer recommending testing asymptomatic people, just testers. Beeson, however, says there are no reported cases of the monkeypox virus in Montgomery County. Pottawatomie County remains the closest reported case. You're exposed by close contact with an infected person. Um, your clothes, things like of that nature. Um, and it's not transmitted like COVID, you're not as likely to get monkeypox as you were Supervisor Donna Robinson says she appreciated Beeson's COVID update. I had a couple people talk to me and ask me because they talk about, well, they heard that their neighbor, their their family member had it. And what was the latest? And, you know, I, I think it's important. I mean, as we both said, Everybody's over it, but it is kind of resurged, and so I felt like it was worthy of talking about the guidelines and that sort of thing. COVID test kits are still available from the county's public health office in Red Oak. In the meantime, Montgomery County has a new safety coordinator. Meeting in a regular session Tuesday morning, the county's Board of Supervisors unanimously approved the appointment of Morgan Llewellyn, who currently works as a 911 dispatcher in Montgomery County's Communications Center. Supervisors Mike Olson and Charlotte Schmidt recommended her selection. Olson says they interviewed three good candidates for the part-time position Monday. All three candidates had good points, a lot of good points, and... Three good candidates. They were very good and would have served well. Um, After some considerable conversation and thought, we decided to go ahead and offer that position to Morgan Llewellyn as our new safety director. In addition to working approximately five hours a week, the safety coordinator also assists in organizing quarterly meetings for the county's safety board. Llewellyn succeeds Beth Peterson, who resigned earlier this month. She still serves as election clerk in the county auditor's office. A familiar name in KMA land is Red Oak's new city attorney. Meeting in regular session Monday night, the Red Oak City Council unanimously appointed Brianna Sorensen as the new city attorney, effective October 1st. Sorensen replaces longtime city attorney Tom Stamets with Stamets and Warren, who submitted his resignation or retirement letter to the council. Sorensen currently has a law practice out of Shenandoah and has assisted several area cities in municipal law along with previous nuisance abatement work with the city of Red Oak. Red Oak City Administrator Brad Wright recommended Sorensen 
Sorensen for the position due to her previous experiences with the city and says the hope is to set up a meeting with Stamets and Sorensen before the official transfer of the role. Tom has a number of files uh, that are city files that we've talked about that we'll need to get together and see what needs to be destroyed, what needs to be transferred. Uh, and then there's obviously several things that Bree has not been involved with that Tom has through the years that I want to uh, arrange a meeting between those two so we can uh, talk through some of those issues and make sure she's brought up to speed if, if that's the direction we go. So. Stamets has served as city attorney since his appointment in 2000, replacing Bill Boyd. Councilman Brian Bill suggested formally advertising the post to allow for other potential law firms to apply, mainly two other local firms. However, Wright says both have potential conflicts due to serving the magistrate and the other as the Montgomery County attorney. Additionally, Wright says being from out of town could also provide additional objectivity. For Sorenson. There's, uh, you don't have the inherent conflicts with knowing folks and everything else. Bree's uh, been impartial in, in dealing with folks we've had. Uh, so there's, again, with the digital world, uh, I'd say most things are done via uh, phone calls, computers. I'd say it's never been an issue for her to be here when we need her. Uh, and I think she's committed to that. Stamets has also provided a list of other individuals should the council have decided to pursue other interview op possibilities, most of which were also not based in Red Oak. In talking with the individuals who work consistently with the city attorney, writes his past experiences with Sorensen have been positive. For what it's worth, you have four staff members, basically five county Mary, that typically work with the city attorney. That's your police chief, your fire chief, your nuisance officer, and myself. Uh, we all have a Feels good relationship, good history with Bree. She served us well, and I think I can speak for all and saying that's our recommendation. More from Tuesday night's Red Oak City Council meeting is available at KMALand.com. Iowa Senator Joni Ernst viewed the future of housing development at a stop in Stanton this week as part of a sweep through southwest Iowa. As part of her 99-county tour, the Red Oak Republican paid a visit Tuesday to one of the newest additions to KMA Land, an industrial-sized 3D printer courtesy of Farmers Mutual Telephone Company and Alquist 3D. After visiting with several local government and economic development officials, Ernst tells KMA News the technology could be a huge step forward in addressing rural housing, mainly due to the possible reduction in upfront costs for homeowners compared to the traditional build style of homes. Especially when you produce in scale, so they said 20 to 30 homes across maybe a county, uh, the, the savings could be considerable. It could be up to 30% versus stick home uh, built type houses. During a community meeting with Iowa's junior senator, Alquist 3D founder and CEO Zach Manheimer says two 3D homes currently have owners in Virginia. On top of possibly reducing material costs by formulating a concrete mix specialized for Iowa, Manheimer says insurance companies are looking at lowering rates due to the resiliency of the concrete home. These homes don't burn. Uh, they can withstand uh, up to category three hurricane. Uh, tornadoes testing is still happening, but it's believed that they can withstand that. So there's a lot of benefits. And then one of the things Kevin was alluding to in terms of cost, uh, a 3D concrete home cuts your energy bill by 50%. So much more energy efficient for the homeowner. Mannheimer says further studies would still be needed to test the home's resiliency to flooding. But research is currently being done on possible materials such as corn husks, 
that could be utilized in concrete mixes to reduce costs for developers. Ern says the insurance reduction could be huge given the projected lifespan of the homes. Not only a quality, solid-built home, but then potential savings down the road. Um, and we're not talking about a home that will last 20, 30 years. We're talking about a home that would last 100 years or more. Additionally, Banheimer says the cost of moving the large printer is steep, but he says designs are beginning to become more logistically friendly. In the next two years, there's a lot of designs that are coming down where these printers are going to be sleeker, lighter. It's going to take only three or four hours to put it up and three or four hours to take it down. Some of them will be mobile. So we want to construct a printer here, do it in Iowa, where you have a printer that was manufactured here, a material that was manufactured here. Officials with SMTC estimate the printer could be used to construct homes as early as 2023. Peach County officials have designated a new fund for dollars associated with opioid settlements with several drug distributors. Meeting in regular session Tuesday morning, the Page County Board of Supervisors approved a resolution designating the Local Government Opioid Abatement Fund. The move comes after several states reached a nearly $26 billion settlement with Cardinal, McKesson, and Amerisource Bergen, three major pharmaceutical distributors, and Johnson & Johnson. The designation of a separate fund was at the guidance of the Iowa State Association of Counties. Supervisors Chair Alan Armstrong says it allows the county to better track the funds. That is to accept the funds and set it up as a special revenue fund so that way it is kept separate from all of our other items. And it would be kind of like our ARPA. We could track it, keep track it like our ARPA funds. Morris says the first check came in recently at around $15,500. Over 18 years, participants in Iowa, including all 99 counties in 43 cities, will receive nearly $174 million. Page County Public Health Administrator Richard Mullen says his agency will administer the funds, most of which will go towards preventative measures regarding opioids. A lot of it's going to be prevention and education and getting out there and talking about the dangers of, of opiates, whether it be prescription or whether it be, you know, um, heroin or other synthetic opiates. And then also understanding what it's like to, if you have unused opiates in your medicine cabinet, which actually possesses the greatest risk of where to go and take those and surrender those at drop boxes and things like that. Additionally, Mullen says the health care providers in the county have significantly reduced the number of patients prescribed opioids since 2017, when Page County was considered a high-risk county. Page County was considered a red county. Yes. They had 88 out of 100 prescribed opiates uh, at any given time. And since 2000, from 2018 to 2020, which is the most recent data they have, they, Page County has dropped that down to 47. Each state's share of the funding was determined by a formula considering the level of crisis in the state, including the number of overdose deaths, residents with substance abuse disorder, and the number of opioids prescribed along with the state's population. An Essex native continues to excel in the emergency medical profession. Troy Armstrong was named the 2022 Kansas EMS Association's Administrator of the Year. Armstrong received the award last Saturday at the Kemsa Conference and Expo in Mulvane, Kansas. Currently serving as EMS Director in Anderson County, Kansas, Armstrong says he was nominated for the award in June, but was unsure of his chances against other professionals. 
professionals, some of whom came from larger areas. So that nomination process actually came from a former EMS director here at Anderson County, and one of my employees felt that I had met the criteria to be nominated. They sent that in, and then that nomination is actually graded by a uh, um, set of peer EMS professionals that are outside the state of Kansas that have no affiliation with any of the nominees. And then they um, score those, and then, of course, I ended up being the awardee for the EMS Director of the Year, KIMSA 2022 um, Award. So very honored and humbled to receive that. A 2004 Essex High School graduate, Armstrong previously worked with Essex Police, Essex Fire and Rescue, Shenandoah Medical Center's Ambulance Service, and as a dispatcher with Shenandoah Police. After serving as Emergency Management Director in Johnson County, Missouri, Armstrong spent a year as an ambulance service administrator in Oregon before returning to the Midwest. As it turns out, there will be some legislative races in KMA land in the November general elections. Recently, Adams County resident Pat Shipley announced her campaign as a Democrat contender for Iowa House District 17, while Velisca City Councilmember and Democrat Trip Nerup is set to contest for Iowa Senate District 9. Though the Iowa primary took place last month, both candidates were appointed through county nominating conventions. An Ottawa resident, Shipley graduated from Villisca High School in Iowa State University before teaching for five years in Farragut and 11 years in Corning. Shipley says she felt compelled to run after not having a candidate to vote for in the Democratic primaries. And I thought with a new district that there was no incumbent, that it was important for the voters in the area to have a choice about um, who they elected. So I just decided I was going to do that. Shipley says one of her main goals is to better utilize public dollars for public education. She says the recent state legislative session have placed too much blame and pressure on the state's educators. Teachers work miracles every day in the classroom, and it's been very difficult the past couple of sessions to watch teachers be almost targeted as being the reason things aren't going well in education. And I just believe it's time to advocate more strongly for teachers and any public education employee. Additionally, Shipley criticized the state's recent actions on Medicaid and questioned whether closing mental health institutes, such as the Glenwood Resource Center, is the best decision. Narup, a Villisca native and resident, moved back to southwest Iowa three years ago after retiring from a publishing job that took him to St. Louis for several years. Narup has served on the Villisca City Council for the past two and a half years. Much like Shipley, Narup says he was disappointed to see the number of positions without a Democratic candidate, including several Senate races. You know, there were, I don't know, five, six positions that uh, were completely uncontested, and the, uh, the Senate seat was one of them. And I thought, well, we need to, to do something about that. This, you know, we shouldn't just let uh, an important thing like a Senate seat uh, go without any, you know, any contest whatsoever. Narab says education is also essential, including giving districts an adequate increase in funding. Governor Reynolds signed a 2.5 percent increase in per-pupil state after several Democrats and school districts called for closer to 5 percent. Additionally, Narab says the state needs to find more ways to fund the replacement of bridges throughout the state, a category in which Iowa ranks worst in the nation in the number of bridges in poor condition. And in rural counties, 
it, it's a particular burden uh, because uh, bridges are just so darned expensive. And, you know, we, we don't have a, you know, large population tax base that, that uh, can help finance these things. So we really need a lot of help from the state and from the Fed. Narab says bids to replace one bridge just to the east of Villisca came in at around $2.5 million in a city with an average budget of $1.5 to $2 million in the November general elections. Shipley will face off against Republican nominee Devin Wood. On NARIP will challenge incumbent Tom Shipley. Commercial solar developers will have to wait at least a few more months before submitting applications in Mills County. At a recent meeting, the Mills County Board of Supervisors extended a current moratorium on commercial solar applications until November 1st. The current moratorium was set to expire at the end of August. Mills County Building and Zoning Technician Holly Jackson and the Planning and Zoning Commission have reviewed the county's solar ordinance in the past several months. Jackson tells KMA News the new draft of the ordinance is beginning to take shape. We are in a solid place with where the draft is of the ordinance and working with each of those departments within the county that would assist with that. Um, right now, we are exploring what the options are if we need any zoning district amendments to make adjustments to our matrix, and we are also establishing a committee that would review all of this information as well. Jackson says the supervisors have also been providing insight along the way. The Planning and Zoning Commission has discussed several items and possible updates. Jackson says a good majority has to do with ensuring the county and developers take proper preparatory and accountability measures. If we have the right screening requirements, what types of panels and fencing would look like, um, height requirements of the panels, and to make sure there is a solid decommissioning plan in place, what that process would be to begin each project. Would it go through the Zoning Board of Adjustment, the Board of Supervisors? While the county's ordinance does include a 15-foot height limit, Jackson says some suggestions have included a minimum height to allow for specific types of dual-use farms. She adds proper notifications and collaborations with other departments, such as conservation and secondary roads, are also being considered for the ordinance. Jackson has also communicated with several other jurisdictions dealing with solar developers and ordinance revisions, including officials with Lynn and Johnson counties. I went to a conference in May that was a great opportunity to connect with those other um, jurisdictions and those people that, that are doing this, and that we were able to talk about the different challenges that each one of us are facing and how you know, maybe somebody else was able to work through that in a better way. Jackson says the hope is to present an initial draft of the new solar ordinance to the Board of Supervisors by the end of September to allow for further fine-tuning before the moratorium expires in November. Essex City and school officials hope the spirit of cooperation between the two entities continues. Essex Mayor Calvin Kenny discussed the current state of sharing between the city and school district with the Essex School Board Wednesday night. Essex School Superintendent Dr. Mike Wells tells KMA News Kinney reviewed the existing sharing situations and expressed the desire to not only continue but expand cooperation in the future. Basically, we help each other with mowing. They do our snow removal. When their employees take vacations, we help them out filling the gaps with the construction of our house. They've been real good about coming over with equipment and helping us with that. And he just wanted to discuss the future of those sharing agreements and no money exchanges hands between uh the two entities, but uh, it's gone well, and the board really would like to continue, and the city council would like to continue 
uh, with those arrangements. Wells says Kenny discussed how the Essex K-12 complex, with its quick connection capabilities for generators, makes it suitable as a community emergency operations center in situations such as last December's derecho. Last December, there were some short time periods when we had winter issues with heating and the city hall filled those gaps. So we're moving forward with the school becoming an emergency site for the community with a quick connect so we can get a generator and uh, can sustain people for a longer period of time. Wells says another future sharing avenue involves vehicle and equipment purchases. When we're buying vans and cars and they're buying heavy equipment, there's no reason for us to own a snow truck with a plow when we can share the city's vehicle. Same thing if city officials are going to state meetings. We have five or six vans. There's no sense I'm sitting here unused if the city can use them. So we will continue to look at some of those other options like that. And also purchasing and we're both nonprofits. If we can purchase things together, supplies, etc., uh, that could save both of us. As a superintendent, Wells says he appreciates having a mayor and city government that's helpful to the school district. In other business Wednesday night, the board approved the district and superintendent's goals for the 2022-23 school year. It'll be later this fall before another bid-letting attempt takes place on the Sydney School District Stadium Renovation Project. Earlier this week, the Sydney School Board tabled the project after an unsuccessful bid letting last month. Sydney School Superintendent Tim Hood tells KMA News only half of the project received adequate bid coverage. Plans called for an extensive refurbishment of the district's football stadium and track with an estimated price tag of $2.4 million. The uh, all-weather track, uh, eight-lane straightaway, six all the way around, uh, new bleachers, crow's nest, looking at either remodeling the existing concession stand or building new. So those are the main things. And then alternates were moving the Little League field to a different spot so we could put a practice field kind of where the Little League field is located. And then the other big part of that was the parking. We purchased the ground that's close to the stadium for some parking. So that was the other part of it. Though the project is on hold, Hood hopes for another bid lending attempt in late September or early October. We uh, have asked for an extension from a couple of the bids. Uh, that we thought were uh, good, solid bids. Um, so we're waiting on them to get back with us if they'll uh, work with us on extending the possible date for uh, the bid being solid. The proposed stadium renovation is the final piece of a major construction initiative sparked by a $10 million bond issue approved by Sydney District voters in November 2019. Hood says punch list items of the bond issue's other projects, including CTE and gymatorium additions and renovations to Sydney Elementary School, are in the final stages of completion. The superintendent adds a mini open house of sorts takes place during the district's back-to-school night this coming Monday evening. Well, preparations for a new school year and a major construction initiative continue in the AHSTW school district. Voters last November approved a $12.9 million bond issue for a long list of improvements to the district's existing pre-K-12 complex with almost 66% of the vote. Darren Jones is entering his fifth year as AHSTW superintendent. Speaking on KMA's Morning Line program Wednesday morning, Jones says preparations are shifting from the design development phase to the construction document phase. We met with uh, members of SiteLogic again yesterday. Those plans are being developed, and we're looking for a page turn and building walk with the construction documents. In probably mid to late September, 
with then bidding to begin in the month of November. Jones says the proposed renovations meet the needs for some special programs. The project was really designed to assist us to add a CTE wing on to the west side of our building. So we will be getting a brand new shop, industrial tech area. We'll be getting a new FFA classroom, new FCS, family consumer science classroom, along with a new music room and, and business room in that new wing. With the successful bid letting, Jones says construction would begin around March 1st with an 18 to 24 month time period for completion. Though the first question on last fall's referendum cleared the 60% supermajority that was the bond issue. The second question entailed a $6.7 million bond issue for construction of a new auditorium missed by six percentage points. The superintendent doesn't anticipate another vote on the auditorium portion of the project in the near future. And that wraps up this week in KMA Land. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. And for more information all the time, log on to KMALand.com. You can also hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, this is Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. This has been a presentation of KMA News.